Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 728 for the 29th of January, 2021. This week, Luminar AI from Skylum adds artificial intelligence to the company's photo processing application and reduces the complexity of the user interface. In short circuits, normally shutting down or restarting windows is done from the power section in the start menu, but there are times when having those options as icons on the desktop or using the command line can be helpful. If you've ever wondered why there are so many Microsoft Visual C++ entries in the Windows Apps and Features section, and whether you could remove some of them, we'll consider the choices. In spare parts, only on the website, there may be a pandemic that's keeping us from gathering in even small numbers and limiting interactions to electronic meetings, but research by Adobe suggests that creativity is accelerating. Realtor.com says there is a shift away from beachfront property to locations in the mountains, at least for those who can afford a second house. There is a technology link to this story. And 20 years ago, remember receiving America Online discs and CDs that were mailed, stuffed into magazines, and handed out by the millions? Yeah, I do. The first thing you may notice about Luminar AI's user interface is that there doesn't seem to be very much of it. That's because the application uses automation and machine learning to modify images. But it's also a bit misleading because a complex interface does exist under the hood. When Skylum provided a review copy, it came with some images that could be used to display the program's many useful features. You'll probably find these images in reviews that are published elsewhere, but I wanted to give Luminar AI some truly challenging images to chew on, so we'll take a look at those in this review. I've been scanning some old family photos. When the negatives are available, I use a Plustech film scanner to create highly detailed TIFF images. These approach the quality of today's raw digital images. A modern raw digital image gives the user the greatest amount of latitude for improvements, but a high-quality scan from a negative is close. In some cases, though, the negatives have been stored and I haven't always been able to locate them. As a result, some of the scans come from standard 6x4-inch photos. Scans of photos are third-generation images. Film stocks have a lower dynamic range than raw digital images, and prints made from film reduce the dynamic range even more. If the color balance of the print is off, it is difficult to correct, even if the scan is a high-resolution TIFF image. I scanned photos on an Epson Perfection 3200 photo scanner using ViewScan set to 800 samples per inch and using the Adobe RGB color space. That provides the best possible starting point. But the best possible image created from a scan of a print, if you set up a 1 to 100 point scale, they'd probably come in at about 35. 
I'd like to share three images with you. You'll find them on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Two are scanned from photos. One is a digital RAW file. So let's start with the worst image. It's a scan of downtown Seattle from a boat on a gray, misty early morning in August 1994. The colors are uniformly gray. Much of the detail is lost in the mist. The horizon isn't straight. After all, I was on a boat at the time. This is never going to be a good image, but it can be improved and improved substantially. Following a few minutes' worth of effort in Luminar AI, I did get a considerably better image, and you'll be able to compare those two before and after on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Some apparent detail has been pulled out of the mist. It doesn't really exist, but our eyes suggest that maybe it's there. The colors have been enhanced. The horizon line is straight. These changes have also enhanced noise in the image. But overall, it's a big improvement over what I started with. Let me know what you think. The second image, also from 1994, is a photo of my daughter's and a cousin's child on a bench at my aunt's house in New Philadelphia. The photo has a strong green color cast. There are several possible causes for that. It is pointless to think about the causes 27 years later. Instead, what can be done to improve the image? Again, knowing in advance that the result will never approach perfection. Usually, color correction begins with identifying something in the photo with a neutral color. Sidewalks and asphalt roads are often good choices. That picture didn't have either of those. There's a bench in the background that looked promising. Maybe it was white, but that didn't work either. And no matter how much I fiddled around with the various settings, I just wasn't quite able to get rid of that overall green cast. But one of the color settings in Luminar AI is called... Remove Color Cast. Activating this did exactly what I had hoped it would. I performed a few other manual modifications, cropped the image a little bit, and the result, again, check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. It isn't perfect, but it's a big improvement. The third image is from a digital RAW file created with a Sony RX100 Mark VI point-and-shoot camera on the 15th of April, 2020. That was the height of Ohio's initial response to COVID-19. I drove around my neighborhood, Ohio State University, and downtown Columbus to gather some images to show the conditions at that time. I took one photo at a shopping center that was all but deserted. The image was slightly angled, and the light severely reduced the amount of details in the storefronts. This camera also has a substantial vignetting problem at its widest focal lengths. The resulting corrected image has straightened the horizon, added emphasis to the sky, slightly cropped the image to place more emphasis on the foreground, and greatly improved detail around the storefronts. It is what my eyes saw on that Wednesday morning in April. A bright blue sky, closed stores, and what seemed like a huge, empty parking lot. Is the color of the pavement wrong? Well, maybe. But it also serves to call attention to the emptiness. Skylum, the company that created Luminar AI, notes that the photo editor includes many artificial intelligence technologies. Atmosphere, sky, structure, sun rays, augmented sky, landscape, mood, color harmony, iris, face, body, and skin. Some are intended for use with portraits, iris, face, body, and skin, for example. Others are used for outdoor images, atmosphere, sky, and landscape. 
and there are some that will work for any image. Luminar AI can work as an independent application or as a plug-in for Lightroom Classic or Photoshop. The objective that developers were given, according to Skylum CEO Alex Sepko, was to use artificial intelligence so people can focus on the outcomes and photos and not worry so much about the editing process. Much of that depends on Luminar AI's templates. Templates are what other photo editing programs call filters or looks. And I wanted to switch gears a little bit. From this point on, we'll be looking at Luminar AI being used as a plugin for Lightroom Classic. The Lightroom Classic user right-clicks an image and chooses Edit In from the menu, then selects Luminar AI. This opens Lightroom's external editor dialog box that gives the user a choice of sending a copy of the image with Lightroom's adjustments to Luminar AI to edit a copy of the original image or to edit the original image. The user then selects some file options and clicks Edit to open the image in Luminar. The image we're looking at here is from 1994, and it is a scan of a photographic print, so low quality to begin with. With Luminar open, the user can click on the Template button. Luminar opens a panel on the right side of the image to show recommended templates for that particular image, as well as all of the templates that have been loaded. Selecting one template will display a group of related templates for the user to select. Once the template is selected, the user can move the strength indicator at the bottom of the panel to modify how much of the effect should be applied. During the process, two options are available for before and after views, one that shows the entire image before and after, and another that creates a vertical slider that can be moved across the image to compare the two views. When the image looks the way the user wants it to, clicking the Apply button returns the image to Lightroom. When the image is returned to Lightroom Classic, it's placed beside the original image. One copy has the Lightroom edits, and the other is the modified version with the Luminar edits. Templates include modifications that include settings based on what Luminar AI believes the image contains. If it's a photo of a person, tools that enhance skin, body, eye color, and such will be selected. If it is a landscape view, tools for color harmony, mood, sunlight, detail, and sky will be selected. After applying a template, the user can open the edit panel to change the settings for each of the effects, and if desired, then save the modified templates for use with other images. So the bottom line for Skylum's Luminar AI is four cats, Luminar has been around for quite a while, but this is the first version of Luminar AI. It is a strong contender for use as a standalone application or as a plug-in for Adobe's applications. Luminar AI is a $100 application that can be installed on two computers or $80 if you want a one-computer license. The company offers, but doesn't require, Luminar X membership. That's a subscription program that includes 12 months of regularly delivered creative assets, eight professional photography courses per year, one bonus course, 10 new templates every month, 10 new sky textures every month, and a 15% discount on anything you buy in the Luminar marketplace. If you'd like additional details, you'll find them on the Skylum website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, 
might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, normally shutting down or restarting windows is done from the power option in the start menu, but there are some times when having those options as icons on the desktop can be helpful. I have three unusual icons on the desktop, restart in five seconds, shut down in five seconds, and abort. Depending on your needs, the restart and shutdown options can be set to take effect immediately or be delayed for the number of seconds that you specify. Before getting to how this is done, let's consider why. There's actually no really convincing reason to do this, but it's a good starting point for other shutdown or restart options that you might sometimes need. It's possible to create icons on the desktop to perform any of these functions, but you can also just open a command prompt and issue a command. But why? The Start menu's power functions offer both shutdown and restart options, and those options will first ask you to save data from any open application before shutting down or restarting. But maybe an application is not responding and can't be closed. The usual method will eventually close such an application, but the command line is faster. So let's take a look at how to create these icons. Start by right-clicking an empty space on the desktop, then choose New, Shortcut from the drop-down menu. When you're asked for the location of the item, navigate to C, Windows, System32, and select Shutdown.exe. Now, there are DLL files with the same or similar names, so be sure you choose Shutdown.exe. When you click OK, C, Windows, System32, Shutdown.exe will appear in the Item dialog. Before clicking the Next button, though, decide what you want the shortcut to do. To shut the computer down, type a space after EXE and add forward slash R, a space, forward slash T, a space, and 5, or some other number. The forward slash R tells Windows you want to restart the computer. To shut the computer down, use forward slash S instead. The forward slash T switch delays the action for the number of seconds you specify, so forward slash T space 5 would pause for 5 seconds. After you've done that, click the Next button and fill in the text you'd like to appear with the icon. When you press the Finish button, a new icon will appear on the desktop. In addition to the restart and shutdown icons, I've added one that uses the forward slash A switch. This is handy if I accidentally start the shutdown or restart process and realize that one or more applications with unsaved data are open. Clicking the abort action before the end of the timeout period halts the process. The shutdown process itself has nearly 20 switches. To see a full list, open the command prompt and type shutdown space forward slash question mark. The question mark tells the process to display the help file. Be sure to add the slash and the question mark. 
Otherwise, Windows will shut down in 60 seconds unless you issue the abort command. The primary switches are forward slash L, which just logs the current user off without shutting down or restarting. Forward slash R, we've talked about that one, it restarts the computer. Forward slash S, that's the one that shuts the computer down. Forward slash A aborts any process during the timeout period. The forward slash T and some number delays the process for whatever number of seconds you specify. There are two more that I haven't mentioned. Forward slash P, that immediately powers the system off without any delay or warning. And forward slash FW, that instructs the computer to open the firmware user interface during the next boot process. The shutdown command is one that can be used by system administrators to reboot or shut down remote computers, and several of the switches apply to those uses. You'll find them if you take a look at the help file. Why are there so many Microsoft Visual C++ files on my computer? That's a question that may have occurred to you if you've ever scrolled through the Apps and Features section of Windows 10 Settings looking for an application to delete. You may know that Visual C++ is a programming language, and if you're not a programmer, possibly you've wondered what these applications are doing on your computer. If you've wondered about deleting all those files to save space, think again. First, the files aren't really very large, just a few megabytes each, so deleting them won't free up very much space. Second, and perhaps more important, you may not be a programmer or a software developer, but those files are essential to some of the applications that are installed on your computer. Note that the word redistributable is part of the file names. You'll find these files in the Program Files x86 directory on Drive C, but you may also find others in directories occupied by applications you've installed. So what about deleting the duplicates? Well, that's not a good idea either. One of my computers has eight copies of vcredist-x64.exe. These range in size from 451 kilobytes to nearly 15 megabytes. So obviously, they are not exactly duplicates. Deleting one of these files can cause a program that depends on it to stop working. If a software publisher includes its own version of a Visual C++ redistributable file, that file will be placed in the application's directory structure, and it will be used instead of the default files. So it's better to just leave the files alone. And if you're the kind of person who occasionally scrolls through the Windows, Program Files, and Program Files x86 directories on Drive C, you may find 32-bit and 64-bit Microsoft.NET Framework files in versions ranging from 2.0 through 4.0. In some cases, you might even find some version 1.0 files. So if version 4.0 is installed, wouldn't it be wise to remove the earlier versions? Well, no, it would not be wise. Microsoft still updates earlier versions, and those earlier versions are required by some applications if they haven't been updated to be compatible with the newer versions of the framework files. Just leave them alone. The overarching rule of file deletion is this. 
never delete a file unless you know with certainty what the file does and that deleting it will cause no problems. Even then, it's better to rename the file first, then reboot the computer to confirm that everything still works, and even then wait a week or two before actually deleting the file. This approach makes recovery quick and easy if you discover the file that you knew you could delete without causing a problem couldn't actually be deleted without causing a problem. Don't rename or delete spare parts. To see what's up this week, head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll find these articles. There may be a pandemic that's keeping us from gathering in even small numbers and also limiting interactions to electronic meetings. But research by Adobe suggests that creativity is accelerating. Realtor.com says there is a shift away from beachfront property to locations in the mountains, at least for those who can afford a second house. There is a technology link to this story. And 20 years ago, remember receiving America Online discs and CDs that were mailed, stuffed into magazines, and handed out by the millions? I do. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.